0: So, I'm sitting here with a nice cup of tea. It's not too hot,
1: not too cold. It's just the way I like it. It's just right. It's beautiful. And it's the whole universe just sitting there drinking tea and thinking it's just right. Our theme today is. Goldilocks is the Buddha.
0: Goldilocks is the Buddha. Not too hot, not too cold. Not too hard, not too soft, not too big, not too small.
1: And everything in moderation, including our visions of what Buddhism is. But before I let people go home today, I'm going to show them that to have an image of Buddhism that is more moderate than we usually have, is in fact boundless, is in fact a Buddha's being moderate, is in fact enlightenment. Moderation is enlightenment. That's a pretty bold statement.
0: Darn right. So if I understand this correctly, when I go too far one way that's dukkha. When I go too far another way, that's dukkha. And when I find that center balance, then all the dukkha is gone?
1: Well, not necessarily. is I often say, there's a time to be balanced, and there's a time to be balanced about not always being balanced. Sometimes life is just off the rails, man. Well, yes. And so in our last
0: episode, we talked about being in the moment and trying to be in the moment too often is wrong. And I don't mean that Trying to be balanced all the time, because there are times when it's too hot and when it's too cold and when the tea's not ready to drink. But if we can find these periods when we can just settle into that moderation, is is that it? Is that enlightenment?
1: Well, that, that's really good and it's really important. And by the way, I think this episode is kind of a continuation of uh, our last episode on moderation in being in the moment. And I, I emphasize there that more important than always being in the moment is to let each moment be each moment and what you just said is a continuation of that there are times to to be in the zone to have not too much not too little to have our bike of life perfectly balanced but more important to me is to say that just let each moment be that moment and in our practice too Man, people have this idealized picture of Buddhism, and that's what I want to get at today, that they're really extremists about what they think a Buddha is, extremists about what they think a monk is, extremists about what they think enlightenment is, extremists about what they expect of themselves in the practice. And I'm telling people, hey, we got to get realistic here, man. We're human beings dealing with other human beings. And our vision of what it means to be enlightened, I think, is 2,000 years of bullshit. Ooh. Can we say that? Can we say that on the air? It's Buddha Bull.
0: That would be a good title for the episode, but I think Goldilocks is the Buddha is probably a better title. It, it's going to attract more people. So I'm trying to not be moderate here. I'm trying to trick people into um, listening to this episode because they're going to see a controversial title, such as Goldilocks
1: is the Buddha. Whatever you call the episode, Doesn't really matter. What matters is people's images of Buddhism, I think, are too extreme, too much something that you will only get if you yeah, if you're reincarnated about a thousand times, then you'll you'll finally get it, but no hope for today, no hope for even next week. No hope in this lifetime. Maybe when we die, we go to the pure land and it's all pie in the sky. Then maybe we'll get it. People have this extreme view. A Buddha Someone who truly is a golden being with light coming out between his eyes. I've never seen anybody with <laughs> light coming out between their eyes. And if I did see someone with light coming from between their eyes, I'd tell them, you better see a doctor, man. Why is that light coming out between your eyes?
0: Isn't that one of the problems, though, the deification of the Buddha um, that made him this mystical creature? And with all the fancy texts like the Lotus Sutra and others that turned... What well, was probably just a guy, kind of like Jesus, just doing his thing into this magical creature?
1: Yeah, well, it starts when these guys are alive. And I've even seen it with me. I've had people call me and go, Jundo, I understand you're a fully enlightened being. I'm on the plane. I'm coming over. I'm going to live in your barn <laughs> and I will be your servant. And I said, No, man, no, please stay where you are. I'm not giving you my address. Do not come here. <laughs> Uh, For a lot of these groups, you see when there's a Roshi, when there's a big guru, they already try to put the person on a pedestal. And it just gets a thousand times worse when the individual dies. And as the generations pass and people polish the story and embellish the story and add to the story, and there's a wonderful world, hageographize the story. It just gets bigger and bigger and bigger until this person is literally performing miracles and walking on water. So I think that, of course, that's what happened in Buddhism. And Buddhism, I'm sure, was a really good, great fellow. He might have been, like, above average. <laughs> really good. You know, I'm sure he had tremendous insights. But I don't think he's half the Buddhable that they say about him. I'm sorry, I know, I'm know i a Buddhist priest. And I'm going to say that. I honor and respect the Buddha. But I don't think he was, you know, one-third of what the, he's cracked up to be. But let me say this. i got to finish the... The other half of today's point, Kurt, ask me what that is. What's the other half of today's point? I'm glad you asked. Because even the moderation of Buddhism is infinite, is sacred, is boundless, is something magical and wonderful and wondrous. I'm going to explain how... Everything in Buddhism that's promised is actually true, even as we get a more realistic picture of what it means to be a Buddhist.
0: But it's only true if we can drop off all of our preconceptions of what it should be, right? Exactly.
1: When we drop what we say body and mind, and our expectations, or as we say in Soto Zen, our goals and our measures, And when we encounter a world where everything truly is a jewel, if our heart sees everything in life, even the the rusty tin cans, even the dog poop as a jewel, even the jewels as jewels, everything is a jewel in its way. When we get to that point, we see that even being, how to say, human, even being moderate, is truly a miracle, is truly sacred. You see, when you are being just a good person, not a saint, when you are being a good person, it is the Buddha. And I use that term in that sense in all of reality, the whole universe, the Buddha, God, if you want to say, whatever it is, it is the universe being good. And good, while not perfect, is still good. (laughs) So we're
0: part of Team Dogen. Right. And how come Dogen has never been deified like the Buddha? I don't remember. Oh, he sure has. Well, I don't read many miracle stories of him. I mean, we read about Bodhidharma um, meditating in a cave for nine years and all that, but we don't read anything much like that about Dogen. Sure, we we read about his trip to China and all that, but there's there's no golden light coming out from Dogen's
1: eyes. No, that's a that's a very good point. And I think as you came closer and closer to modern times, and you had actual writings and stories from these people. Good point, where we yeah. Could, uh, a, a, a real personality, a real uh, life with foibles. You read Dogen and you say, well, man, that guy, he's having a bad day today. He's yeah. not perfect. When that comes through. But when you go back a few generations to Bodhidharma, for example, almost a completely fictional character who is polished up by someone writing stories, of course, then the legend gets bigger. And even for Dogen, let me tell you, 200 years, 300 years after Dogen died, these uh, so-called life stories or biographies of Dogen came out where he was performing miracles. Miracles were happening around him. Bodhisattvas were appearing to him and performing Uh, various miracles, it it started to happen too, you know. On my joke, and I've told you this before, I'm hopeless. No one's ever going to deify me because they realize what an idiot I am (laughs) from this podcast.
0: Well, in a few centuries, when the podcast is forgotten, there will be memories of Jundo on the mountain.
1: This podcast will be forgotten?
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's all ephemeral. It's all going to disappear one day.
1: You do all the editing can you can you edit this into something more you know s- saintly and mystical?
0: Uh, no? I'll try to do that. I'll put a little reverb in the background to make it sound like you're speaking from on high
1: yeah, but p- make light come out f- from between my eyes.
0: Well, it's an audio podcast, so I can't really do that.
1: Well, my point is this uh let's let's take several subjects if we may, about Buddhism that people often exaggerate, and uh may I take a few
0: Sure, feel free
1: okay. We we already covered the Buddha, that I think he was very wise, very great, but I don't think he was the perfect being people make him to be. And yet, he stands for this, what we call the big Buddha, that's all the universe, that is fantastic, that is boundless. A man on earth, and that includes you, Kirk, and me. When we act in Buddha-like ways, we bring Buddha to life, we say, here on Earth. When you do charity, when you have a peaceful heart, when you do good. But at the same time, you are this whole universe that is, how to say, flawless. So, you see, being just good, Kirk, not perfect, Kirk. You need a shave today, by the way. I know. Not perfect, Kirk. You are still this flawless universe. So that is why, in Buddhism, why do people demand a perfect Buddha? Why can't they just be happy with a very good Buddha that is this perfection of all the universe? Why, Kirk? Why? That's one.
0: This sounds like a New York Jewish stand-up routine is going to be starting any second here.
1: No, no, the New York one would be, hey, why? Why? Tell me why, man. No, no, this is... This is uh, my pleading heart. Another one, another one is the behavior of, let's say, uh, Buddhist monks. Uh, I have met many Buddhist monks, and they're usually very strange and troubled individuals. Generally, why? Because only someone suffering in life, and kind of strange, and who had problems, maybe uh, you know, early in life he really screwed it up. He decides, well. I need to fix myself. I'm going to become a Buddhist monk, and that's why people come to any religion. So when they get to be Buddhist monks, you often find that, hopefully, they're more polished and they got it under control. But they're still the the same, sometimes troubled individuals they were before. And you put these people in a monastery in tight quarters, about two feet apart. You're looking for trouble, man. You're yeah. looking for trouble. Uh, I think uh, most Buddhist monks that I know. Are if they practice long enough, if they really do this wonderful path, if they walk it, oh, they become much better individuals, and they leave so much of their suffering behind. But you'd be surprised when it pops up. I just had this with a, a monk uh, in our community who has issues and under control, and they kind of resurfaced uh, recently. And I said, "No problem, man. You're just human. These issues, uh, you know, surface. This happens." But at the same time, you're still that perfect jewel that is the universe, you see. Don't expect the monk to be perfect. Expect the monk to be better than he was in good. And he's still the flawless universe.
0: Can we just do a little bit of explanation? Because I know a lot of people don't really understand in Zen when we talk about monks and priests and what it actually means, because in Tree Leaf, we don't have a monastery. So we're not in that sort of, you know, limited space next to people all the time. So a monk doesn't really mean it's a monk, and a priest doesn't really mean a priest. And the, the Japanese terms don't really match Western terms very well, do they?
1: Yeah, okay. Okay, we'll put a little footnote in here. So uh, monk and priest are both uh, basically Christian words that got stuck onto Asian culture when the missionaries came and needed to translate the Chinese or Japanese words for these things. But actually, they're not so bad. When someone is living in what is basically a monastery and is celibate, uh, like a uh, Zen monastery, they're basically not that different from monks uh, in the... In Christianity. So, a monk is not a bad word for someone in a monastery. And at other times, if they're in a temple with parishioners uh, doing ceremonies, kind of helping them out with the universe, oh, you need crops uh, to grow this year, you need the rain, I'll do a ceremony for you. Priest is not a bad word either. So, they're actually not terrible translations. The most beautiful term I know is sorio, which is the Japanese word for what a a priest or monk is, which means companion to the community, to the Sangha. Sangha, community companion, someone who follows you. And a teacher is a friend along the way. I love that term. Yeah, You know, not a teacher, not someone who's going to show you everything, a friend to help you on the path that you have to walk yourself. They're lovely terms.
0: Yeah, because you often see people described as Buddhist monks who aren't in monasteries. I'm thinking Leonard Cohen, who died recently, the musician, he was often described in articles as a Buddhist monk. Now, he spent a lot of time in monasteries, but he wasn't a monk in the sense that he was there all the time.
1: Well, I came up with a term. I said, you know, we we talked about this before, but modern Soto Zen folks marry or have girlfriends and boyfriends, right? And I've got kids and a house. And yet I'm also, an, and a job, I'm a translator, but also I'm uh, supposed to be the the uh, guy who leads the community, the Sangha. So what am I? Am I a, a, a priest or am I a monk? I came up with a wonderful term because I'm not, a. am I a lay person? No, and I definitely came up, oh, not. Oh, I'm a little of everything. So I came up with the term, I'm a least, because I'm a lay priest, a least. I'm the least of the whole community, because I'm supposed... Or how about this? A play. Because Mm. Buddhism is play. You don't like it? No. I'm a punk? Or that's (laughs) uh, my my Dharma brother there.
0: Ah, I I hadn't thought of that. A prunk. A lunk? No, a prunk. A lunk. A plunk. (laughs) Whatever it is. I just thought it's important for people to understand that when we use these terms, monk and priest, priest is almost understandable that you're a leader. Monk is. The one that's more ambiguous because, as you were saying, we have tree-leaf monks, which are actually trainee priests,
1: and so it just gets a little bit vague. Call me a friend along the way. A friend along the way. And even, you know, you you wrote on our our podcast that I'm a Zen master, and and that's another thing. Again, we're going to get back to it. Overblown. Often seen in the past. Oh, a Zen master. A perfectly enlightened being. Flawless. Someone... we who has mastery of a skill, of an art, is a master. A piano uh, expert, a a beautiful musician, is a master of the piano. A a master carpenter. So I'm a Zen master in that way. I don't claim any perfection.
0: No, but see, this is a term that goes together. It's a collocation. Two words that go together often, Zen master. And if Mm -hmm. you look at it in English, master is an old word for teacher. Right. So... In in England, more than I think in the U.S., you would have the math master and the history master and all that. You would have masters as teachers. Maestro? Maestro. Maestro is the leader of the orchestra. Um, mm-hmm. He's also the master being the one who probably knows more. But no one says he's he's perfect. And in Chinese, um, the honorific Lao, which means old, is used for the same thing yes. as a master or a teacher. Lao Tzu means old Tzu. Um, so, yes. It, while it suggests in English that you're an enlightened being, if we really think about how the word has been used over time, it just means that you know a lot more than other people.
1: My my wife uh, often jokes. She'd say, "Hey, enlightened being, pick up your socks. You left them <laughs> under the couch." You know. Yeah. So I you remember that's from from Seinfeld. Call me maestro, Kirk. Please call me. Call me the maestro.
0: Okay, here's where I confess that I've never seen an episode
1: of Seinfeld. Oh, you're missing out. Are you kidding? It's all on, uh, I think it's on Netflix now. Let's get back on topic.
0: Yeah, let's get some more Goldilocks things here. (laughs) See, I like the Goldilocks idea because it's something that everyone knows. In fact, uh, I'll find the title of the book and put it in the show notes. Some physicist or astrophysicist wrote a book about, was it the Goldilocks universe or the Goldilocks planet saying that our Earth is just not too hot, not too cold, just right.
1: This is one of the most important facts of science that I believe is under-discussed. Uh, uh, the Christians have picked up on it, and I think they've that's kind of uh, taken it away from being uh, a serious subject of discussion in general. But it's coming up, thanks to places like the Discovery Channel, because they hit on this so hard that this actually became more accepted. And I think even people like Stephen Hawking and and, uh, some great minds uh, of uh, the modern world of uh, physics, including uh, several Nobel Prize winners, have pointed this out. And it's a very simple fact. The entire history of our planet leading to where we are had to be so finely balanced, not too hot, not too cold, not too near the sun, not too far away, Gravity, not too strong, not too weak. Incredible series of factors had to be within such a narrow range in order for the miracle to happen of me talking to Kirk right now. By the way, Kirk, are you still there? Yeah, I'm here. I'm just listening. Okay. You were so quiet. I thought I just like stunned you.
0: (laughs) I'm not bored. No, the the important thing about the Goldilocks principle, which I've just looked up, is that the temperature is not too hot, not too cold, but just right to have liquid water. And that's what scientists think is necessary for life.
1: That's one one of, of course. countless factors. The strong force, the weak force, the electromagnetic force. But if you look at just the, the, the fact that uh, our land is, is not too high, not too low, Uh, that uh, the seas receded at just the right time, that we've been struck by meteors, but not too many meteors, Uh, (laughs) not at the wrong times. It it is an incredible series of just rights, or if not perfect, just within such a narrow range of what could have been. If you think of the entire range of temperature, by the way, and I start to spitz when it even gets to 90. I was just in Las Vegas. We were talking about that, man. You know? But, and if it's like a, a difference of 30, 40 degrees, I'm starting to freak out. But yet, look at the possible range of temperatures within our universe. We are within such a narrow range. And if we were not within that range, maybe we would be amoeba, but we wouldn't be intelligent life because intelligent life is fragile and we need a special delicate condition. This is important and, and it's going to be if I'm I'm telling you, is going to show our close connection to this universe. I'm saying something right here. At the time of the Big Bang, the conditions were so narrowly within a certain range that later life was basically in the cards. And I don't think it was chance.
0: Well, you are an enlightened being, so you would know if that was I didn't the case. know
1: I was in a sense, I was there.
0: yes uh, I just wanna, I just want to mention something that um, you were talking about meteors hitting the Earth, and I saw a story just yesterday showing about the randomness of the world we live in, and some woman was sleeping in Canada in her bed, and there was this loud noise and this bump on her bed, and she woke up and a small meteor, about six inches wide, hit her pillow three inches from her head, came through the roof of her house and hit her pillow. I'll put a link in the show notes to an article that has a photo of the meteor on the pillow. And that shows just the randomness of the world we're in, that things can be that close. And for her, it was Goldilocks. She was just on the right side of the pillow that night.
1: Well, you know, this is also the selection effect, that if it actually had hit her, she wouldn't be there to report (laughs) the meteor. Uh, Yes, but then there would be a news
0: story about how someone was killed in
1: her bed by a meteor. This is true. But, you know, there are so many planets in the universe. We've only found that out, really, within the past century, the the number of variations on planets, that, in a sense, you had all kinds of possibilities. And the fact is that we are alive on one of the narrow range of planets, it seems, that would, would allow us to be here. But if we were not here, we wouldn't be alive. So we would have nothing to talk about. We wouldn't be having this podcast. That's a really good point. So in a sense, there's a selection effect. Exactly. You need the right con- conditions of the universe to have a podcast discussing, isn't it amazing that we have the right conditions <laughs> to have a podcast?
0: <laughs> and then it's turtles all the way down. Yes, it is. Yes. A- anything else for moderation?
1: Well, uh, let, me, let me take one. How about enlightenment?
0: Ah, enlightenment. You have, yes. to be, you have to be
1: fully, fiercely enlightened. Is that what it is? I think you can be fully, fiercely enlightened. When this is a, one of the great discoveries of Zen, if I may say, compared to some other areas of Buddhism. Uh, some other areas of Buddhism have said when you become enlightened or when you become a Buddha, everything falls into place and you're perfect. The Zen, shall we say, take on that was, oh, everything is perfect, even as you're still up to your neck in the mud. Because first off, the mud and all the muck and chaos of this world, the ugliness, no longer drowns you because of the Goldilocks principle. And second off, you realize how to see through it. This was such a brilliant discovery that I recommend to all our listeners. Do not search for enlightenment in which your life is going to now be flawless. Do not be searching for an enlightenment in which you will never have indigestion. Do not search for a universe in which every Seinfeld episode will be exactly the length you demand. Search for a universe that is precisely the universe as it is, and don't let the ugly parts take you over, don't be their prisoner, don't fall into ugliness like greed, anger, and ignorance, and at the same time, see through it all to the jewel that holds all separation and division. And when you can do that, you don't need to be perfectly enlightened. You realize that this perfectly imperfect world is perfect.
0: And that's a lot of what Dogen talks about when he talks about practice enlightenment, right? That the mere fact of practicing, of sitting shikantaza, of, of that will to practice, that motivation, is enlightenment itself.
1: Letting all things be as they are. But when you truly let all things be as they are, they are no longer as they were. But will they ever be the same again? You mean, can you step in the same river twice?
0: Well, I wasn't actually thinking that, but you're saying all things were as they were and they they aren't as they are. And it's, I guess we just have to say, just let things be.
1: And if you forget it in the next moment and you start getting angry and you start resisting and you start getting frustrated, then you lose it.
0: Okay, where do we go from here, Roshi?
1: There's no place we need to go, but I got to get to dinner. And you know, it's all wonderful.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. Please give us a rating. Tell your friends. You can check out past episodes at our website zen-of-everything.com. Thanks for listening.